Once you've caught one, you get the bugs for it, but when, yeah. you go, when it goes quiet, you're just like, oh, this is the, what am I doing? I'm Etienne Stott, and this is Clear Access, Clear Waters, the Paddlers podcast brought to you by British Canoeing. Today, I'm in a place that's very special to me. It's where I won my Olympic gold medal with my crewmate, Tim Bailey. It's the Lee Valley White Water Centre, just near London. Good to see you, boys. Good session, mate. Oh, yeah. I'm here to meet two British team paddlers who also love fishing. Why is it not attached to a rod right now? I just take them off. I'm going to get their take on the way forward between the two sports and how the Clear Access, Clear Waters campaign can fit in. It's really good to chat with Ryan Wesley and the Rio Olympic gold medal winner, Joe Clark. So you flip the catch there, yeah. like that, and then when the fish runs off the line, you, that, so that you, I'll hold that up. You, you, you reel it? Well, mate, I've never done... Well, I've done fishing once in my entire life, and I didn't actually do any fishing because the fish had all gone to sleep, apparently. So tell me as much as you think I need to know to get me into fishing so I know what it's all about. I'd say the fish don't sleep, mate, so whoever told you that has had you off completely. That's the start. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different types of fishing. Um, the fishing that me and Ryan are into uh, is, is carp fishing mostly. On a bite alarm with a rod pod, three rods, so we've got triple the chances of catching uh, <laughs> and still don't catch. Um, I don't know what else, really. What, what, what do you want to know? Well, what's the biggest fish that you've ever caught? Mine was just under 30 pounds, uh, literally just under. I think it was like 29, eight or something. Were you gutted when it wasn't over 30? I was, especially when I was the one that kind of got Ryan into it and he's caught a 30, a 30 plus. Oh. What was it, Ryan? What was it yours? 31 pounds, four ounces, I think. Not that I remember that well or anything. <laughs> 30 pounds, that's about, yeah, I guess that's a big fish. How big is it in terms of, uh, how would it look like my leg size or something? Would it, would it chew off my leg? Uh, different. So the one that I caught was like a really long one, yeah. Uh, but slimmer. Whereas Ryan had like a real chubby one, so a lot shorter okay. and uh, more broad. I feel I'm asking stupid questions here. I so mean, I'm they don't have teeth, so they're not going to chew your legs off. Okay, well that's worth me knowing as well. So, and and I, I remember once I went um, at the near the hotel in Prague. There's a massive tackle and bait shop there, and it's literally full from roof to the floor of technical stuff and food and things to bite and everything you know are you into that side of things that looks to me like you know people can lose themselves in a place like so that the uh, my missus can't listen to this podcast can she <laughs> i don't know mate. <laughs> i mean there's a shop just down the road here and uh well they know our names yeah so that probably gives a bit of a insight into after and so you spend a bit of time in there do you yeah yeah well it's in, obviously the gear is really important you know and the fish definitely look on the bank and uh you know if you've got you a cheap rod and a, Cheap setup, they're not going to get caught by, are they? And so, and, and, and just vaguely, are we talking, you know, is this an expensive hobby then? Um, it can be. I mean, if you look at the baits, every bait is advertised. This is the one bait that will catch you a fish. Yeah. Uh, so you could easily get caught up in the marketing. I hope you're getting the idea. Here are two passionate paddlers who are also two passionate anglers. And then they decided to show me their collection of fish bait. These are like krill ones, but as you can see, different colours. They smell pretty, pretty potent as well. Oh, mate, that's <laughs> rough. Oh, that's like. <laughs> oh, mate, you should see when you get like a proper sloppy mix on the go. Cloudy krill liquid, mate. You gotta smell this one as well. Oh, I'm not, I'm I don't want to do it. Do it for the podcast, <laughs> mate. Oh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you do? Do you sprinkle that into the water? So no, so. You've got some pellet here. I hope I've not got any on my hands. Some pellet here, so yeah. you kind of mix it in there. Okay. And then uh, yeah. you can you can either like you can either spot it out, 
basically, which means you've got like a, a little sort of bomb thing on the end of your yeah. fishing line, and you basically use your rod to throw that out, yeah. and then it puts it out in an area. Or you can use like PVA bags, yeah, um, and you fill them full of it, and it adds a little bit of extra attraction. So tell me about your your favourite fishing experience. You know what it was like. What was the you know set set the scene for me. I mean, last summer was when we got into it quite heavily, so we'd go after most training sessions. We hadn't quite invested in all the gear, so we are literally just sleeping in a sleeping bag on the floor, so proper enjoying the outdoors. Yeah, stripped uh, back. I remember for my, like, Adams, the whereabouts uh, for drugs testing, I was, like, writing, like, third peg in on the bottom lake, uh, <laughs> blue sleeping bag. Like, it was so, like, just... We look back at it now, and we actually invested uh, in, like, a, a bivy, so basically a tent with, like, an open front on it. And the, the one day we actually invested in it that evening went night fishing and it actually like like come down so heavy the rain did and it was like kind of washing under the uh where we were before and i was thinking oh god that was the best 200 pounds oh best not tell them this is that but yeah the best 200 pounds i ever spent you ever met tony glidell do you know the guy i've been talking about no nah. so he well, he was he was a team psychologist back in the day and he was like really keen fisherman and he said to me like the thing that he loved about fishing was that sense of anticipation. He said like that is the sweetest human emotion when you're like waiting for something awesome to happen. Yeah, but it always keeps it like that rather than being like pessimistic, you always remain optimistic yeah, that it's yeah. gonna happen. So like say if we said, oh, we're gonna leave here at six o'clock. <laughs> we'll leave the rods in as long as we possibly can. Yeah, thinking yeah. it's gonna be next, it might be in a minute, it might yeah, be in a minute. Yeah, and then yeah. at the end of the day, you're just so worn down out of like hoping it's gonna yeah, happen. Yeah. Like, oh, it didn't happen. But I mean, it is awesome. Like, I mean, as canoeing is obviously an outdoor sport, I tend to like that side of it. And you know, with spending a lot of time on uh, artificial courses these days, and then going to the fishing lake, you know, it's like quite a nice area. You know, out in the out in the country a little bit, it's nice and peaceful. So going out there, like in between training sessions, doing a bit of a night fish, waking up, waking up on the side of the riverbank. Hopefully, uh, you know, a few beeps in the night from the bite alarms waking you up. Yeah, it's a really nice way to chill out. Is um, that sort of peaceful side of it to you quite important? Because for me, this is, you know, nature and the outdoors. There's a sort of special sort of peace there that maybe not everybody, especially we're in an urban environment here we're in London, perhaps people don't get access to that so much anymore. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I think around here, you know, the fishing lakes and the fisheries are really well kept and they are probably some of the, the nicest little bits of, you know, greenery in the area. Um, and yeah, the type of fishing that me and Joe do, you know, like you said, we set the rods up on rests and you got your bite alarm on and then it means we basically just lie back in our chairs, sit down there and, uh, you know, enjoy the outdoors. But it makes it a lot more interesting than just going out and sitting down for no reason. Yeah. Although maybe more frustrating at times. And yeah, yeah well, tell me about the frustration, Joe. I mean, we're in a, we're in a sport, I guess, Kudu Slalom has sh showed me a bit of frustration over the years and... Uh, is it frustrating? What's the blend of frustration to satisfaction in, in, in fishing? I think it, the frustration is uh, maximised when you've just gone to the bait shop and bought loads of bait that you think is going to catch loads of fish and you don't catch anything. Uh, and also the frustration comes when we, we talked about the night fishing on, on the alarms. Is like you, you go in there to, to night fish, but really you kind of want to sleep as well because you've got training the next day. <laughs> so it's like I remember one evening... It was evening, right? I'm still remembering exactly. Not to catch anything. Well, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say is that the <laughs> evening, Ryan caught his biggest fish. He basically had the biggest fish about nine o'clock. Went to sleep, had a good night's sleep. 
and my alarm went off about eight times in the night all about 20 plus kilos so really good fish sorry 20 plus pounds but like i'd prefer the one big one and go to sleep all night he woke up happy as larry oh got a new pb <laughs> we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of access and conflict a little bit later but first a bit more from lee valley with my fellow olympic gold medal winner joe clark you must have just felt amazing sitting on that start line <laughs> with that crowd. Yeah, I mean, that's the strange thing for me when I come here and I look at, you know, I remember being in that in that pool and it was actually very calm. I think they'd managed to somehow train the crowd to to just be, you know, just hush a little bit before the racing actually started. But my scout leaders were stood in there, they were in the first stand and I heard them shout to me, go on ET, which is what they used to call me when I was a kid in scouts. And I was like, oh man, these guys are already super psyched, super excited. And we both, I think me and Tim both heard it. We both kind of chuckled to ourselves inside and then got the game face on. And I mean, was it in Rio? It must have been, was it because I guess they're speaking, were they speaking English in the stadium or is it like yeah, a mixture? Yeah, Brazilian, Portuguese, and and English as well. Oh, wow. So you've heard you've heard a bit of stuff, but I guess you're kind of trying to pick out times in foreign languages and stuff like that. So it's a bit yeah. different. Home support's not obviously the same. So you've, you've it's it obviously dumbed down a little bit mm -hmm. compared to what you had, but you still have the uh, kind of camera right in your face, yeah. uh, recording it, and you're just kind of like looking at it, thinking, "Oh God, like, oh, just don't make any mistakes. Just don't make a mistake. Yeah. Just don't show myself up here." And I think one other thing that I think is really cool about here is that they've kept the podium. Well, it's not the exact one, but they've put it in exactly the same place. And I just, I always chuckle inside when I see the kids playing on it and jumping off it and like, you know, doing videos and photos for their, for their parents on it. And I think that's one of the things that, to me, it's interesting when they come here. I think it's quite an inspiring venue. And I suppose, do you find it, do you find it like that? Yeah, I do. I think... You, almost when you train here every day you kind of forget what an amazing event, venue it is and recently brought some of our neighbours who have become good friends along right. here and they just saw it for the first time oh my god I didn't realise this was on, on the doorstep mm, basically yeah. like what an amazing outdoor space for children kayaking rafting everything's going on it's always got something yeah. going on here um, and have you been on a big bouncy castle bit because I went on that a few weeks ago that was actually <laughs> mega or are you watching you're worried about your injuries no no that's still on the uh, to-do list I just need to find a time to get over there. I mean, every time I, I think every time it's sunny, I'd love to go on the uh, the beach volleyball courts, but for some reason, never seem to make it over there. Mm. Too busy training, I think. Yeah, well, you do your training, mate, and I'll do the beach volleyball, Top Gun style. <laughs> <laughs> I always find it a bit strange walking into the Lee Valley Whitewater Centre reception to see mine and Tim's Olympic boat hanging up there in the rafters. But of course, since 2016, Joe Clark's Olympic winning boat has also got hung up there. And that's really cool. I love that. So I was just wondering, mate, you know, whenever I come here, I still find it slightly weird to find my, uh, my canoe hanging up in the rafter or mine and Tim's canoes in the rafters. What do you think, you know, when you come in here and see that? Does it remind you, bring you all back? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's pretty crazy to think that's the boat I won the Olympics in and it's in the reception. It's quite nice because boat storage here is like 100 quid, so that's free boat storage. That's always nice. Uh, there's always sessions where you think about cutting the chains and getting it down when it's not going so well and bringing back them good memories. Was it a good? Was it an exceptional boat in your in your memory? Of course, it had it did something exceptional, but was it you know was a boat you sat in it and just went wow this is an absolute beauty straight away? Um, I started out really enjoyed it and then just tried to get one exactly the same. But as uh, any canoeist will know, trying to get one exactly the same will, is a pretty hard task in itself. So went through about five boats. Still couldn't find one I liked, so just got the old trusty out again and uh, went with that. I recently was at the World Cup here in Lee Valley and uh, it was an awesome performance from you. And that must be a great feeling just to, you know, this is your town now. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, 2015 World Champs came away massively disappointed because I felt like I could have done a lot better, and especially home crowd. You, you think you only get one World Championships in your career at home. Fortunately, hopefully, I'll, well, 2023 World Champs is here again. So uh, fortunately, it will be within my career. Whether I get there or not is another thing, but uh, can't look into the future too much. Um, but yeah, just I guess you've, you probably felt the same emotions when you line up on that start line and hear the crowd. I mean, I know the crowd for your kind of uh, your race is probably three, four, five times as big as what I had. But just that feeling of everybody behind you to kind of willing you on to do the best that you can possibly do is just you can't beat it, can you? And do your hairs ever stand up when you're talking about it? Sometimes when I'm doing a talk, sometimes I talk about it and it's kind of, you know, it's just a fact this happened to me. Sometimes I watch the video and sometimes I'm talking. In fact, actually my hair's standing up just now somehow. You know, something connects back with these memories deep, something, you know, really amazing feelings. I've done countless school talks and business talks and stuff like that since about the experience. And every time I'm watching the, uh, the video, I'm kind of at the side, like dodging the poles yeah. still and thinking, well, I lost a bit of time there and start analysing it again like and uh, yeah it's, it's just one of those things that you, you just cling on to it like for all the tough times as well like when it's the winter and you're cracking the ice and get on here and freezing cold it's thinking about what an amazing experience that was and that is essentially what drives us on to the next one and trying to achieve our goals. I started in the Scouts back in the day and I heard that you also started in the Scouts but I've never really heard you talking about it so tell, tell me a little bit about it, tell everyone about that. Um, yeah, I was in the Scouts, first day in the Scouts group, um, and we were just out on the camp at Kibblesden, uh, just up the road from the Scout hut, and uh, it was an opportunity to, to try canoeing, like kayaking, um, and I was just like, jumped on it, it was this little lake, pretty brown, <laughs> just a group of lads, um, like seven, eight, nine, whatever you are at that age, um, so I just decided I was going to try it out, obviously we just went around in circles for a bit, got dizzy and then and fell in a few times, but that's where it really sparked for just me. messing around with your mates, isn't it? That's what everyone does, first of all, just floating around, jumping yeah, in. and the social aspect of it, yeah. really. Um, everybody's as bad as each other, so you could all have a laugh at each other. Nobody's, uh, nobody's good at that stage. So that's for me where I wanted to join the local canoe club off the back of that. Um, just that one experience with your mates, just enjoying something outdoors. Yeah. Was just, it yeah, just resonated with me. This is actually the very first rod that got us into fishing, mate. That, yeah. That's what I caught my first ever carp on, oh, on, yeah. a, on a float with a little bit of bread. So I'm holding it right there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or do you have it like that? No. Oh, it doesn't really it doesn't matter. It really matter. And you would, you flick, you cast it out like that. Yeah, yeah. And then you wind it in. Yeah. But generally with carp fishing, you spend the rod spends more time on the rest than it does in your hands. Okay. You know, they're pretty finicky creatures. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you spend more time casting and reeling and casting and reeling. And how often do you do that? Like, you know, do you just do, you just do it when it, you think it's not catching anymore, you bring it Yeah, it's it all like, a, depends how impatient you're feeling or how happy you are with where you cast it to. Yeah, okay. So there's a direct correlation between the money you spent on bait that day and the amount of casts you've done as well. Okay. Uh, certainly, after not catching for uh, for a few hours, you think, well, obviously, it's not, not the way the bait's presented, it's not my fault, it's just the bait, the fish aren't here, so I need yeah. to put it somewhere else where the fish are, so oh, you start kind of recasting more regularly, stupidly, but... Especially when me and Joe are fishing right next to each other and one of us is catching loads and the other one's catching nothing. So I'm gonna What's wrong let with me, let me is go me? a little bit closer to where you are. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> We've heard about Joe Clark, and now here's a bit about Ryan Westley's paddling story. So I started as, you know, purely a recreational paddler. Um, my dad, my dad did a bit of slalom racing, but has always been into you know general paddling. Um, so I think he plunked me in a boat when I was about three years old. 
Um, and then, you know, being from Somerset down in the southwest, there's not a great deal of access to whitewater rivers, so did a lot of paddling on a river called the, the River Axe, um, and then spent a lot of time paddling in the sea, um, you know, surfing in boats and that kind of stuff. Um, and then eventually, when I was about 11, my, my dad got posted to uh, an army base in Yorkshire, um, and from there, the slalom seam was much bigger in the north and, and got into it up there. And so that's when you became like a serious, seriously, more seriously involved with the competition? Uh, yeah, in 2005, it's my first slalom race. Um, I, th- I remember watching the Olympics in 2004, but I never really put two and two together. I just sort of saw canoe slalom as a fun, fun thing to do. You know, I'd been canoeing, so why not go through these poles as well? Um, and then, yeah, it must have been or a year or two later when I sort of got to Div 1 and sort of really started to understand that there was a selection process and there was a British team, that, you know, coming from the recreational side of it. I basically had no no idea that existed. Um, so, yeah, then I sort of bumbled on through and suddenly there was a career to be had in canoe slalom, which was a pretty nice thing to find. What's your best moment in elite-level slalom paddling? Oh, it's... Yeah, really hard for me. Um, you know, definitely winning my first world's medal at home in Lee Valley. Um, you know, cool, on a, yeah. Oh right? uh, yeah, obviously that was like really unexpected. You know, it was a bit ahead of myself really, but you know, home advantage and all that, and doing it with all the family and so many fans around, that was amazing. Um, but then when I yeah won the European Championships last year. Um, noticing the difference between standing on the third step and the second step, how much different it is to stand on that top step. Yeah. You know, it honestly it is worlds apart. Um, for, yeah, the difference between a silver medal and a gold medal, it, it feels so significant. Um, so yeah, probably that first proper race that I ever won, well, the only race I've ever won so far, so far hopefully, um, that's probably been the best moment. I think a lot of people hear that anglers and canoeists and kayakers and other river users don't get on and there's often hear talk of people shouting at paddlers and maybe even getting physical with them and, and perhaps the other way around as well it doesn't you know doesn't doesn't strike me as implausible that these things could happen that conflict and meeting you guys you're obviously paddlers and anglers how does it how does it work for you to when you hear about those stories and, and, and does it bother you? Uh, it's pretty sad um, that those things happen, really. I think, from my perspective, obviously, I can try and see both sides of the coin. Is Obviously, you want to go out there to enjoy the river for what it is, mm. in a canoe or a kayak, or whatever kind of boat you choose. Uh, obviously, the, the fisherman's trying to do the same thing. Mm. Uh, I do think there is a, a place where they can both kind of work alongside each other in, in ambience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's... Taken, taken into account people's kind of hobbies and what they enjoy and trying to see both sides for me it's obviously it is a bit annoying to reel your rod in if you have to for a, for a canoeist or a kayaker to come past but it's something that you just kind of have to take on the chin and, and do really and, and again I think when you're a river user you should probably try and respect the anglers as well yeah. by trying to go around as much as possible try and make as little noise as possible to try and yeah keep the the upset to the waters as low as possible yeah. but it seems to me like i mean even when i was growing up we used to like 
paddle around the, the fishermen's lines and try you know sometimes you go around the corner and there's one just there but no one want, we never wanted to aggravate anybody and kind of frustrate them and it seems to me a little bit needless and that we could actually there's no need for this conflict yeah i suppose a lot of the disturbance you don't see obviously fish are quite finicky so they do get scared off but at the same time no one has exclusive rights to the water and if you're if you're that worried about someone scaring away your fish then you can obviously go to a private fishing lake the mm. um, same way if a paddler doesn't want to be disturbed by fishermen they can go to an artificial course yeah. um, obviously that's not ideal that's not what a lot of people want to do um, but if you really can't get along there, there are obviously other options um, yeah personally I don't see why you know people can't concede a little bit here and there mm. like you say paddlers go round round the lines and you know I've, I've come across people fishing on rivers I've been paddling on uh, personally I've never had any bad experiences yeah. um, people have always been happy for me to paddle around um, and all that kind of stuff. I think, yeah, it's just, well, I don't see why people can't just get along, you know? Yeah. No one has exclusive rights to it as far as I know. I suppose the interesting thing for me is that we, we're talking, you know, I'm interested in, in environmental stuff these days and this is all really about sharing the resources that we have, you know, equally or fairly, you know, so that people have the chance to, especially nowadays, these outdoor spaces and these chances to get out are relatively rare. So it seems to me we should be even more careful to share them between us and, and enjoy them together sort of thing I think um, from seeing some of the stuff from the Paddle Peak project uh, with Pete Assels there's huge benefits to, to letting the kayakers onto the water because they can access places and do things that the general public couldn't necessarily do um, whether that be river cleanups and stuff like that obviously it relies on them not leaving any litter behind as well yeah. um, but I mean there's times where a I've been out and, uh, on, the, on the river at Stone and fishermen have got the lines caught in the far bank and can't get access to yeah. it and actually asked me to yeah. if they can get my line out the tree and yeah, stuff yeah. and obviously you can kind of go over there get the line all sorted and mm. it does it depends on where you are what stretch of water and stuff like that but I think you're always going to get those outliers that are massively anti-kayaking it's trying yeah. to bring those people to have kind of some more understanding of of everybody else yeah and it's fair to say there will be some kayakers who might be kind of a bit aggro around the the, the, the fishermen and, and that sort of thing well there's people like this all the time yeah. here and there but to me it seems no well i think nowadays which i guess that's what british canoeing are trying to do is to try and get like engage anglers and say look you know there's no reason for this to be i think you know i think perhaps you know you hear one story and it's like everything is all everyone's really angry but i think the vast majority of people could be completely fine whatever you go to you're always gonna have people that aren't the nicest mm. um but i think a bit back to what you were saying about you know um outdoor space has been fewer and further between and you know these days you've got quite a lot of trouble with uh rivers getting dammed left right and center mm. and you know um i certainly know of times obviously i'm more in the paddling community where people are trying to save the rivers and prevent the damming and I, again, I don't do much river fishing, but I imagine that, you know, that would severely hamper the uh, chance of anyone being able to fish in these places. I know, for example, at the moment there's a project in um, in Glencoe, Glen Nevis, um, and obviously salmon fishing, fly fishing, super popular up in Scotland. Um, so you know, if you think if you bring the paddling and the fishing community together a bit more, you might be able to sort of you know group and maintain that access to these rivers and keep them flowing naturally yeah. um, and that you know that would benefit everybody going forwards really interesting to hear ryan talking about access there and there's a natural link to the plastic pollution issue that's cropped up in all the other podcasts so far plastic pollution is huge we talked about 
enjoying the outdoors and I think if you're a lot of canoeists kind of get into it because they enjoy the outdoors so they're going to have a vested interest in making sure the place looks nice mm. and I think a lot of anglers obviously they get into it because they enjoy the outdoors so if we work together what's to say we can't help with all that kind of pollution getting rid of all the plastics in the river and trying to clean the rivers up so there's more fish for them to catch because there's more breeding going on and all those kind of things that kind of goes round in one big circle that everybody benefits. There's these complaints that often get levelled against paddlers. For example, we pay to fish and the canoeists don't pay to paddle. What do you got to say about that? Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, canoeists do generally pay a membership to uh, to British canoeing, um, you know, grant some access to waterways. Uh, and then in general, I'd say, as a fisherman, you obviously pay your environment agency rod licence. I think that's more of a tax to stop just any any person coming up, really and dangling a fishing rod in the river and potentially damaging the fish in the area. Um, I feel like that's, yeah, more to more to control that aspect. And I feel like as a as a paddler floating through a river, your your impact on that area uh, and therefore the responsibility that you need to show is probably not as severe. The people that have the rod licences are probably going to show the fish a lot more and the river a lot more respect than those that just kind of a bit... Um rogue and don't bother with it it's not a huge amount of money if you've got one you probably know what you're doing a little bit more same with with uh, the the membership to british canoeing if you abide by the rules and for for that waterway that you need a british canoeing membership then you're probably going to be a bit more know know your way around a boat and and a paddle and and how to kind of kayak or canoe um whereas you do get those odd outliers that just paddle a dinghy down the river, throwing beer bottles out of it. Well, that, I wouldn't say that's a canoeist. I would no. say that's or, or a kayaker. That's just somebody doing what they see as fun, and it, they would not be labelled within British canoeing. Yeah, I mean, that, and, and that brings us on to the next thing. So people say, "Oh, the paddlers are dropping litter," and that just seems to me. I'm sure there's people littering around the place, but I would call out a paddler if I saw them just dropping some litter on the floor. Yeah, it infuriates me um, when I go to train. Yeah, I kind of started walking and cycling to training, and you can see people opening the windows and just dropping rubbish out of them. And you just feel like locking out the window and posting posting the rubbish back through mm-hmm. again because it's it's just why it's, it's unnecessary. Like especially in today's society, there's bins everywhere, and just take it home with you. Like, mm-hmm. but I've never I've never personally witnessed that kind of behaviour happening from canoeists. If anything, they end up taking more rubbish home with them than they came out with but I mean maybe that's my biased opinion and obviously if people can give examples of this I'd like I'd like to see it this is a thorny one that I hear all the time and I don't know what the, the story is but do canoeists and kayakers do boats stand up paddle boards whatever do they scare the fish I used to um, do quite a lot of fishing on the canal back at home and You'd have canal boats coming along regularly, and you think, "Oh God, I'm not going to catch anything for ages." But quite often, either right as the boat was passing, or just beforehand, or just after the boat had passed, you'd get a, a fish on the end of your rod. Because yeah. I always felt like it was they'd probably been fishing around, uh, like swimming around for ages, and they got pressured into taking the bait. It was either now or it wasn't going to happen. Oh. Uh, maybe that's my kind of <laughs> opinion, but um, I don't know. It's it's hard to know. It's uh, I think if you move through slowly and don't kind of splash around too much i'm sure there'll be um less of a disturbance obviously there's gonna be some disturbance always but i think as long as you're careful with what you're doing but 
at the end of the day, if the fish is going to come back to that area, if it's that's the it's natural kind of area it swims around in, it's probably going to come back. And if it's not going to get on your hook, then you're probably not presenting your bait correctly. Mm. Yeah, I'd say you know fish aren't they're not going to be disturbed by a craft coming through and then instantly write that area of water off and never come back. Um, so yeah, I mean it probably does scare the fish. Um, but in the same way that a bird landing on the on the river, a swan coming through would do, um, and you know that just requires a little bit of patience on the fisherman's part. In the same way that it requires a bit of patience on a canoeist part, having to take a slightly different line round. Um, and you know, if if paddlers do come through and you think they've dis- disturbed your swim, you know, there's generally places you can move on to. Um, and, you know, I think, like I said at the start, that's just part of sharing the waterway you know people have got to make concessions either way it's not going to be perfect for everybody um but i mean i don't know for me half the enjoyment of fishing is sort of being out there and you know you don't have to be catching fish constantly so maybe if there's a 10 minute lull after someone's come through then it's not the end of the world i was just struck there as well by thought that i've heard for example i think i can't remember which manufacturer it was they made a vast majority of their boats were uh, canoe fishing boats and like now there's just this huge crossover between the two yeah, so. the two sports is it yeah so you've got those two two sports are combining and so it seems even more strange that they are you know falling out and there's this conflict between each other because they're actually now joined joined together yeah i mean i'd love i'd love if uh, the local lake here allowed us to take our boats out because there's places you can cast you can't it's oh. really tough to cast to and that's almost like another skill in itself to know how far what kind of power you need to put on and stuff. Whereas you can just kayak, kayak out there, drop your lines. And in France, they do quite a lot of that, like take little rowing boats out, drop the lines in some uh, some really good locations, then row back in. And then actually, because they're fishing for much bigger fish, much bigger carp in France, they'll then like cast out, um, go out with the boat once they got once the bite alarm goes, and basically yeah. play the fish off the boat. So it's kind of almost like a it's not quite a kayak, but you could definitely do it with a kayak. Yeah. And so I suppose my overall feeling here is that, well, to me, most conflicts that we have around the world and are often come out of some lack of understanding. And it seems to me like you guys know enough about canoeing, certainly know, know enough about canoeing. And it sounds like you also know a lot about fishing. And, and to me, you've got this, they don't, they don't need to be disagreeing. I think the biggest problem is that maybe the fishermen have had it their own way for 60, 100 years and it's become common nature that you're not expecting to see canoeists or kayakers um, and it's become the norm. So when you see one, it's a bit of a, what's he doing here? This is our waterway. Mm. Uh, but I think if they did accept us more and let us in and let us on, um, then I think they'd actually realise it's to benefit everybody. It, it will be able to make the rivers cleaner more accessible, better, kind of healthier rivers and all round just a better place to be for both them and us. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a slow process like anything. It's trying to, it's almost trying to change the law, the unwritten law that isn't necessarily there um, and people's perception because that's the hardest thing to change. It's, it's, it's people are there that are going to spread gossip about how bad it is and people that are going to be new to the sport of fishing and realise that okay this is not actually too bad this guy that came through oh, I, taught, I caught a fish five minutes afterwards and I always used to take it upon myself whenever I went you know canoeing on, on my river home home river in Bedford I had lots of 
sort of fishermen on it and we were always just trying to be super nice because we didn't want to be the people who give give canoeing a bad reputation and i guess you guys can come at that from both that both both sides of that as well yeah again a bit like back to you know most things it's there's always going to be people that aren't going to get along um personally i've never had like i said i've never had any bad experience um and yeah i think a bit like what joe said really is more that you know maybe it's been one way for a long time and you're sort of learning learning that process learning to coexist um and yeah, I really, really don't see a reason why it shouldn't happen. Well, that's it for this podcast. Thanks so much to Joe and Ryan for being on and really hope you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe and leave a review if you could. That would be really grateful. And if you want to find out more about Clear Access Clear Waters, check out British Canoeing website and everything you need to know is on there. Cheerio for now.